Morning. This morning we have two readings. The first one is from John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38, and I'm reading from the NIV. So the context was, um, in the lead up to this, Jesus was having the evening meal with his disciples, and um, Jews had just left to go and betray Jesus. So John 13, chapter 31 to 38 says, When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Okay, the second reading is from Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. And this verse says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Well, we finished our series on uh, Continue last week, and next week we're going to break into an Easter. Can you believe we're already up to Easter nearly? Only like just over a month until Easter. Of course, we've had Easter eggs in uh, the the shops since Christmas finished, as soon as Christmas finished, Easter eggs were in the shops, and we've been enjoying hot cross buns since the start of the year, of course, but Easter is upon us now, and uh, next week we'll start a new series uh, where we start looking at journeying with Jesus, journeying towards the cross, and there'll be just a a few snapshots of where we're going to go with this journey with Jesus on the lead up to the cross, and uh, next week you'll be able to see when all the Easter times, we'll have a morning Thursday service, uh, we'll have a a Good Friday morning uh, reflection service, and then we'll have a service on the Sunday as well. Uh, But we've got this in-between week, and in in throughout the the year, I'd love to have times we have, um, I suppose, a break from our, our series that we might be doing to look at a topic, a hot topic. Um, something that might be uh, important for the church to think about, might be something that's happened outside the church that we might want to think about, and think about how we can interact with that in a theological base as we think about how Scripture feeds into some of these uh, topics that we have uh, that, that, that come up. And I don't want to be the font of all knowledge in these as well. I want to hear from others. Maybe there's been something that's burning on your mind, a question that you've had that you think, actually, I'd love to explore that at some stage within church. Um, I'd love to hear uh, an expert's opinion. I'm not necessarily that expert, but an expert's opinion on whatever that might be. Let me know about it. Give me an email. Shoot me a text. um, Give me a call. 
uh, whatever, however you best communicate, smoke signals, whatever it might be, um, and I'd love to hear about those sort of things that are happening. One of the things that's happening in our world today is, and we saw it last week, we prayed about it last week, is that there is actions of terror all throughout our world, isn't there? Actions of terror. We saw it, and it was on our doorstep in Christchurch last week, um, and it's had an impact on many people. I was able to share at Craft on uh, Thursday the, some of the impact that it's had on me. And so I thought today, why don't we explore how do we as a church respond as people of faith to actions of terror? It's been sobering this week to see mosques all over Australia um, open. I think it might have only been in Victoria, but mosques all over Victoria were open. Did anyone know about that? That there was mosques on last Sunday. They opened their doors to the community for community to come through. I know our mosque in, in Newport uh, was open and uh, many people just went through. Many people f- came out of church, didn't go to church, and just went to show solidarity with the, the people in Newport. Many Christians visited. But I wonder, can you imagine the prayers that would have been shared in the days following the New Zealand attacks last week? Can you comprehend the level of pain that people were feeling? Can you think about it as we sit here totally free in our worship without any thought that we might be a target of terror? This is what's happened to worshippers in New Zealand. So we need to continue to pray for those places where fear is very real. But my concern lies in what, ha- what, in what has happened in the past week. And if you follow the news, you'll get different reports of different things that are happening. You'll see Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, she doesn't seem to have put a foot wrong in this whole process. She gave heartfelt speeches, she embraced those who have lost loved ones, and she took action against gun reform. She stepped into the role of a leader and took it with both hands and said, I've got to do something about it. However, we look across the world and some of the responses have been perplexing in my mind. Here in Australia, it's become this political headhunt, a slagging match. Australian journalism and politics deciding that they are more important than the issue at hand. We want to see a winner, so we've got to fight to be the winner. And the issue of terror and grief turned into an issue of politics, a place where no one really wins. Then there's, in the midst of that, there's this, this um, issue of religion. The political debates are laced with religious debates as well and religious hearsay. Yet there was never any affiliation to any religious affiliation to this fellow that decided he had the right to take others' lives. When he was asked if he was a Christian, his response was, I'm not sure. His actions were based as hate against a specific religion. But I don't know any other religion that would claim him for their own. What we do know is that this was tragic. It was sad and it was incomprehensible. And it was aimed at innocent people who were trying to live out their own faith. You know, it's not the first time that people that have been worshipping have been attacked in this way. In fact, at the end of January uh, in the Philippines, 20 Catholic churchgoers were killed when extremists blew up their church. 
In Nigeria over the past week, up to 300 people living in predominantly Christian areas, villages, have been killed by extremists. It's not an uncommon thing. And the reality is we don't hear all the stories, do we? We don't hear the stories of of God's goodness within stories of terror. Rather, when terror lands on our doorstep, we become bystanders to a circus of politicians and media people who feel, to make, who feel the need to make the moment about themselves. As you can see, it's probably made a fair, fair impact on me this week. <laughs> because as a person who loves Jesus, I've been considering what, what would my response be? If I had a platform, and I suppose I do have a platform, what is my response? What's the response of a faithful church to these actions? The church often gets a bad press, doesn't it? But what response should we therefore have? So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at our response. We're going to look at this hot topic of our response. How can the church in an age and terror of unspeakable tragedy, how can we be the church? How can we be the church? Up on the screen, you can see that's uh, Jacinta, uh, Jacinda Arden. She's embracing a male member of the Muslim community. It probably doesn't happen too often that a female and a male would embrace like that in front of a mosque. But as I looked at her embrace of the community of, of Islam, I thought, what embraces do we give as a church within such a volatile world? And I've come up with four, four embraces, four things that as a church we need to embrace, that we may be the church within a volatile world. So let's pray and we'll, we'll look into these four embraces. Loving God, I just pray that this morning that we will as, as one be united in thought and in our response to the actions in this world that are not of you, but that we may be your people in a world bringing joy and hope to a world that often sees darkness. So help us to understand it today. Amen. The first embrace that I want to share is that we must embrace love. We must embrace love. The BUV at the moment has this phrase in regards to reaching the lost or reaching a people that we haven't met before. It says, to reach people we have never reached before, we need to do things we have never done before. It's a really great statement. I like that. There are plenty of people outside the church who, for whatever reason, won't come inside the church or have no interest in being part of the church. However, I think within that comment, we need to make sure that the defining characteristic of God towards his people must never, ever be lost. In the reading we heard from John 13 this morning, uh, we hear that Jesus is speaking to his disciples after a pretty intense sort of situation. See, Jesus and his disciples, they've just shared this, this Passover meal, a celebration meal together. Jesus, in that meal, became a servant The leader took the posture of a servant. So already there's something different about this meal. He got down, he took a towel and washed the feet of his disciples. The disciples, if I was one of the disciples, I would have felt a bit bit weird. That's not your role, Jesus. And we hear it. That's not your role, Jesus. Don't, Don't wash my feet. 
I should be washing your feet. Well, where's the servant? Come, come wash our feet. Jesus shouldn't be doing this. So already in this meal, it's taken a turn. It's not a normal meal. And so if that wasn't enough, Jesus then through the night tells the disciples that there's going to be one of them. One of them's going to sell me out and turn me over to the authorities. And once it was revealed that Judas Iscariot was that person, he stands up and he leaves the table. He just heads out. I don't know if you've ever been to a, uh, a dinner party and someone just stands up and leaves the table. It's a little awkward. You don't know why people have left. Have they just gone out the door? Has something been said? Maybe not all the disciples heard the discussions that were going on, but Judas obviously knew what was going on, and he got up and he left the table. And in that moment, after that, after the moment that Judas is out of the picture, Judas is gone, Jesus chooses to share the next stage of his life with them. And he starts with these statements regarding being glorified. Um, Jesus starts to reveal this new identity of who he is. Perhaps he said, now that the betrayer is gone, I can reveal who I am to the rest of you. The Son of Man is to be glorified. But he also goes on to say, I'm not going to be with you much longer. It's not going to be much longer that I'll be here with you. And he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You can't follow me there. So I'm going to give you a new command. I'm giving, going to give you something new to do. You're, you're going to be on your own. I'm going to send a gift to you a bit later. I'm going to give, and he doesn't say it here, but I'm going to send you something later, the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to leave you, and you've got to do this command. See, commands were something they knew. They understood commands. They lived in a command and obey culture. So here Jesus gives them a new command, a command that was different and brings an, a new identity to the followers of Jesus. And the command is this. A new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. See, Jesus' command wasn't to, to his followers to avenge his death. It wasn't to go and find Jesus, uh, Judas and, and beat him up before he could actually say anything to the authorities. He didn't say, let's get, let's get out there and go, go hide. He didn't say that. He said, love. He said, love. You know, we can come up with all sorts of ways to, to do church. We can have services that, that are snappy. We can uh, run programs that do really good things. We can feed the homeless. We can do plenty of great things, and we already do plenty of great things through this church. It's a wonderful church and many people serving in great ways. We can talk about different parts of Scripture that might help in church life, but when the rubber hits the road, if it's not based in the love that Jesus commands us to show here, then our programs are pointless. They're lost. See, love is essential to showing the world what Christianity is about. Jesus didn't just command us to love, but he said, love, because I've shown you what that looks like. I've shown you what love looks like. God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were still separated from God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. John 15.13. Greater love has no, no one than this, than to lay his life down for his friends. That's what Jesus did. Jesus showed love in the most incredible way. While he was on this earth, yes, 
He taught them so many things, but in his death, he showed what love looked like. He did that for every single one of those people in that room, even the one that ran away. He did that. Imagine in a time of uncertainty and fear, if each of us reached out in a love that looked beyond ourselves and embraces the other. I wonder what it looks like for us to embrace your neighbour in love. For us in Newport, we had Hakum. Hakum was a Muslim mum who lived down the road. She had five kids, I think. Is that right, Sorry, Five kids. And the kids were awesome. They were great kids. And, and one, of the, one of the young fellows, he played basketball with Tarquin. Now, well, when we, when we first met them, he wanted to play. So we got him involved in the basketball team that I coached. And, and we started seeing Hakum come into our playgroup uh, at Newport Baptist Church. And just watching how everyone engaged with her. She was the only one with the headscarf on. She was the only one that um, continually wore that. And, and, but it was just amazing to see how the Christian faithful people of Newport engaged with her. She would come to our house and give us all sorts of yummy, yummy treats and everything. And we would go and help her out with different things as well. And we'd make sure that the young fellow was gotten to basketball and that. Hakeem and Solari still keep in contact and it's a really great relationship. It really is. Because we didn't see Hakum as a Muslim. We saw her as our neighbor. And so we loved her because she is our neighbor. She just happens to be Muslim as well. You know, families that are suffering loss need love like that. Victims of crime and hurt need an embracing love. Children need love like this. And you know, even perpetrators need that embrace of love. And that's tough. Even perpetrators need that embrace of love. Even Judas needed that love. Because that love crosses the boundaries of race, culture, and religion. That love wipes away hate. That love brings people together. And shows Christ for who Christ is, our Saviour. The second embrace we have to em embrace is diversity. We must embrace diversity. Now, to embrace diversity doesn't mean we're just to, intoler to, just to tolerate differences. To embrace, embrace diversity means that we'd actually accept diversity. To embrace diversity means we'll be willing to support others who look and act and think in different ways to you. The American poet Maya Angelou wrote, in diversity there is beauty and there is strength. This was the exact opposite of the New Zealand attacker. His actions and his words were based in ugly fear. A fear that, 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 those, a fear that those who act differently to him were a threat to him. You know what? The Islam faith is very different to the Christian faith, isn't it? We understand that. And we pray for our Islam neighbours that they may come to know Jesus and the love that Jesus has for them as well. But in diversity, we still accept and love. There is a beauty and a strength in diversity. In embracing diversity, we wipe away fear, we break down barriers, and we bring people together, and Jesus is seen all the more. 
In his book, Australia Reimagined, social researcher Hugh McKay states that as of 2016, 33% of Australians were born overseas. That's one in three people were born overseas. Along with that, 45% of Australians have at least one parent born overseas. That's a lot. So as a nation, we are very diverse, aren't we? We're a very diverse country. We're as diverse as any country on the planet, he says. However, there are people who still struggle and wrestle with this. In embracing diversity, we must see diversity as opportunity. An opportunity to learn, to grow with other cultures, but an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ to cultures that just don't know him or have never had the opportunity to hear about him. Jesus' life itself was filled with a diversity of people. His closest friends were so diverse. I often wonder what it would have been like to have a conversation with a fisherman and a tax collector together. What would that have been like? But time after time, Jesus, is, Jesus reaches out to a totally diverse group of people. People who are isolated because of defect or disease. People who had plenty, yet had no soul. Jesus embraced the diversity of the community around him. He didn't steer clear of a certain people group because they didn't look so good. Or he didn't steer clear of a group because he wanted to save face in the eyes of others. I don't want to be seen with those people because they won't like me. Rather, he took each person on the basis that they were actually human beings. In the light of the many actions of terror around our world today, the intention of these actions are to create fear and divide communities. A fear creates walls that are unscalable. We can't get over fear. The church needs to be on the front foot when it comes to embracing diversity. Because we need to be the ones that in the, a time of divide and fear, we have the open arms of Jesus ready for the embrace. I want you to think about the street that you live in. Most of us live in a street. You might live in a cul-de-sac, a court, um, something like that. Most of you will have houses around you. Think about the diversity that's just in those houses just around you. I'm sure they're not exactly the same as you. But do you know them? Do you know their names? Perhaps the beginnings of embracing diversity as a church is to say hi to your neighbour. Maybe your neighbour that comes from a different country. Maybe your neighbour that is at a different socio-economic level than, than you are. See, showing our community, and we have this opportunity on next Saturday, that Kilsyth South Baptist Church is a church that's open to accepting all shapes and sizes, ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds, social standings, and religions, is a way to say Jesus is central to this place. We don't have to agree on religious backgrounds or religious grounds, but we can be accepting of the diversity of religion. Embrace diversity because it leads to the next embrace. Embracing diversity actually leads to embracing inclusivity. 
See, if we embrace diversity, inclusivity is like a byproduct of that, I suppose. We can't really have one without the other. And I'll explain it through a conversation that I had with my friend Jamie. Jamie and I used to catch up a fair bit in Newport. And Jamie, he started coming to our church, and it was pretty quickly clear that he suffered with some mental illness, and he was able to share with me that he had bipolar disorder. At times, he'd put himself into the hospital just to, just to get back on track. And he'd even joke about some of the things that he would have said when he was really struggling. But the one thing that was about Jamie is that he was a genius. I probably have never met a smarter person than Jamie. He wrote poems. Not your roses are red, violets are blue type poems. These were, these were intense poems. And he's written books and had them published. And he's written a poem about Solari and how beautiful she is. And written a poem about me. It's just amazing. But these poems, I, to be honest, I really didn't understand them. They were just, they were just uh, deep, heavy poems. They were amazing. But the formation of the poems is what interests me. The formation of how he wrote these poems. He would write them in ways that, that um, were linguistically perfect. It was incredible. Poems that you would study at university for years to work out, yet Jamie never did any of that. He was just a genius. Last time I chatted, Jamie, he was starting a book. His book consisted of seven chapters that would have 700 words in each chapter. Okay, that's just how his brain worked. And uh, he also had a reason why it was seven and 700. I couldn't quite figure it out. He was a genius, but he had his struggles. This kept him at arm's length from Newport Baptist Church and the community of Newport as well, not just the church. He started coming to church, however, he got a little bit scared off when he was writing poems about the people in church based on the love that they'd shown him. His poems were beautiful, they were innocent. And they were reflective of the people who wrote them. Yet after Jamie had handed them to a few people, they were misinterpreted and Jamie was fearful of their response. I kept catching up with Jamie because I just loved to journey with him. We talked about faith, we talked about life, we talked about struggle. Because I knew that to embrace diversity meant to include Jamie as well. I also, it also meant that in a world that would never really understand Jamie, I needed to show him that Jesus includes him. Jesus includes those that the world doesn't include. Jesus includes Jamie, even though the church didn't. I wonder how inclusive we are as a church. I wonder how inclusive we are of all people. I wonder how inclusive you are of the people in your workplace. I wonder how inclusive you are in the people that are around you, even in church. We need to embrace inclusivity. We need to let people know that they are part of something bigger than themselves. We need to let people know that they are loved and that they are embraced. The last embrace that we have is to embrace justice. It speaks about how we see the world, doesn't it? Justice speaks about how do we as a church see the world. And I got um, uh, Micah 6.8 read this morning. No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do what is right, to act justly, most Bibles will say. 
Often you hear these words, Micah 6.8, and, and they are good words, but we need to set it in context a little bit as well with the rest of the chapter. Otherwise, we miss the true depth of it. The start of chapter 6 tells us that God has a, has, has a case against the very people that he promised so much for because they'd forgotten him, as they do again and again, as we do again and again. He says in verse 3, O my people, what have I done, for, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me, he says. <laughs> you get the feeling that God is a little upset with them. Answer me. <laughs> it's like trying to get something out of my boys. Answer me. And verses 3 to 5 set out various reasons why they shouldn't be tired. Verses 6 and 7 then sets out the Israelites' apology strategy. Well, God, should, should we... I now remember that. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I did real bad. But now, should we get some burnt offerings out? Shall we, shall we sort of give offerings of calves, olive oil? Should we give our firstborn sons? That's in the scripture. And they were keen to give this to God. But that wasn't what God was after. Rather, he was looking for his people to do three things for him. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. To act justly, that's what we're saying here, embrace justice means that we're in a society that has much injustice that occurs all the time. But we're going to be a community that says, I see a problem, and I don't just want to see that problem sort of linger. I want to see that problem disarmed, so that every human has the opportunity to enjoy this world that God's created. In doing justice, we acknowledge that each person matters in the world that we live it's a good Samaritan who, who just can't walk past someone who is generally considered their enemy. Rather, he has to help him. He has to pick him up and help him back to strength. It's a prodigal son who sees his son take off with his, his, uh, basically half his livelihood. Yet when he comes back, he takes the son that's still there and grabs the other son as well. It's Jesus touching the sick and the broken and the outcast and healing them in front of religious leaders who are sticking their noses up at him. Our actions of justice in the world make a massive difference to the kingdom of God. So be an advocate for justice in the place that you live. Don't just allow injustices to fly by. Keep your eyes on the happenings of the world around you. So we have four embraces. Four embraces that we must do in order to be relevant in this world, in a volatile world. Embrace love. Embrace diversity. Embrace inclusivity. And embrace justice. I was reading a few articles on how to respond to actions of terror this week. And my conclusion, apart from the church, that the church needs to make a stand and embrace love, inclusivity, justice and diversity. My conclusion is that these actions must not divide. They must not separate. Rather, as we're seeing in New Zealand, people are coming together. Our embrace means that we're drawing people closer together. I found an article that said this. Simply put, too many people make decisions about a group based on what they see on television news, and that's a bad place to make sweeping conclusions. Don't be so lazy to assume that the, wor that the worst of a group represents the entire group. 
They hardly ever do. Perhaps a better idea is to meet them, learn about them, and treat them as your neighbour. Or as we've been talking about, embrace. Let's be a church who embraces, who shows the world that actually we're not going to stand for what is happening in our world. We're going to be different. We're going to be countercultural. We're not going to have arguments about right or wrong. Rather, we're going to embrace. So I wonder this week whether you'll have the opportunity to share a little with someone who needs to know that they're loved. I wonder if you'll have a chance to connect with someone who you felt that has been so different to you that you thought, I'll never talk to them. I wonder if you'll have the opportunity to include someone that is on the outer this week. I wonder if you'll have eyes that are searching for justice this week. And then I wonder if you're going to make the decision in those moments to embrace. Because that's what we're called to be. Let's pray. Our loving God, we know that this world is volatile at times. And so many times we see the negative rather than all the pockets of greatness that is happening. But loving God, we know that we must be different. We were called to be set apart from the way the world is. That we must act in ways that show who you are. So loving God this week, in the midst of confusion, of debate, of fear, may we show that we are people of embrace. Thank you, Lord. Amen.